This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Dr. Squatch. When your personal care routine needs a refresh, Dr. Squatch is here to help. They have high-performing natural products with no harmful ingredients that'll have you looking and smelling your best. Like the Bay Rum Soap and Deodorant. It smells delightfully spicy. And right now, they have an amazing offer for new customers. Get 20% off your first purchase of any amount or a subscription order by going to drsquatch.com Spotify or use the code Spotify at checkout. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, abuse, and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. It was 1984. Arlene Brickman invited two guests into her apartment, Vinnie Manzo, a mobster with the Colombo family, and his girlfriend, Madeline. They were there to discuss the terms of an old loan. Neither party noticed the camera perched on the shelf of Arlene's hallway closet. They also didn't guess Arlene's real task for the night. She needed Vinny to implicate one of the Colombo family's top leaders, Carmine Persico. Persico was said to have murdered over a dozen people. He was dangerous, ruthless, and had no tolerance for traitors. But to Arlene, the danger only made her job as an informant more exciting. As they negotiated the loan, Arlene pressed Vinnie Manzo for details. Who was getting the money? Was it one of the Colombo soldiers? Who was really pulling the strings? Vinnie was cautious, but Arlene kept pushing until he finally mentioned his boss by name, Carmine Persico. Vinnie didn't know it, but he had just given the FBI evidence that would bring down the entire leadership of the Colombo family. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every week we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Sammy Nye. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And you're listening to Female Criminals on the Parcast Network. This is our second episode on Arlene Weiss Brickman, a mob girl who worked her way into several of New York's mafia families, only to turn her back on it all and become a government informant in 1972. 
If you want to listen to any previous episodes, you can find them and all of ParCast's shows on your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. Many of you have asked how you can help the show. If you enjoy the podcast, the best way to help is to leave us a five-star review. Arlene Weiss Brickman grew up with family connections to the Jewish mafia, and she was enticed by the status and power the crime syndicate promised. But as a woman, Arlene couldn't formally join the mafia. She'd have to gain power by association. This led her to seduce some of the most dangerous mobsters in New York. Last week, we covered how Arlene started her career as a so-called mob girl and the childhood influences that led her straight into the seedy underbelly of the Lower East Side. Arlene moved from one partner to the next as she climbed the mob hierarchy, searching for the next powerful man she could seduce. Today, we'll examine the fateful night that caused Arlene to lose her faith in the mob and uncover the events that finally made her turn her back on them forever. By the time Arlene was 26 in 1959, she was a trusted friend of Tony Mira, a soldier for the Bonanno crime family, trusted enough to help him in the aftermath of a murder in September 1959. This responsibility made Arlene feel important and in control, the very reasons she'd wanted to become a mob girl in the first place. After that experience, Arlene continued her pattern of seductions, and with each man she hooked, she received money, gifts, and of course, the feeling of power. Around 1963, Arlene, then 30 years old, met Walter Perlmutter, a Jewish businessman who at least thought of himself as a gangster. His business, Fortifying Aluminum, brought him into contact with racketeers and mobsters. And while he never formally joined their ranks, they used his offices as meeting places. Walter was married with children, but this didn't stop him from striking up a relationship with Arlene. He showered her with expensive gifts, and even though he wasn't a mobster, Arlene enjoyed his company and his wealth. After a while, Walter even started talking about leaving his wife for Arlene. Arlene wasn't interested in marriage, but she was interested in his checkbook. She proposed that they find a place of their own, away from his wife and family. They decided to run away to Miami. The plan was Arlene would fly down first and wait for Walter to join her a few weeks later. She left her five-year-old daughter Leslie with her parents, who had been helping care for the child since she was born. Arlene moved into an apartment Walter had rented for her and waited for her beau to arrive. Months passed. The money kept coming, but Walter remained in New York. After a while, Arlene's friend from New York, Ethel Becker, joined her in her new apartment. Ethel was something of a mob girl as well, and she quickly became entangled with a few members of Miami's mob. Soon, Ethel had turned the apartment into the local hangout spot for Miami mobsters. Arlene had always enjoyed the company of gangsters, but it was a different story when they spent every day of the week drinking in her living room. After six months, Arlene was growing disillusioned with Miami. Walter sent her plenty of spending money. She was, in every respect, a kept woman. But money wasn't the only thing she was after. She missed the power she'd once held over Walter the rush of their illicit affairs, and her home in New York City. She also missed her daughter, Leslie. 
Arlene's mother, Billy, was furious with Arlene for leaving her daughter behind. She called Arlene an unfit mother. When Arlene hadn't returned after six months, she called and threatened to give custody of the child to Arlene's sister, Barbara. The threat prompted Arlene into action. She was coming back to New York. Walter told Arlene in no uncertain terms to stay in Miami, but he was clearly never coming to join her, and Arlene wasn't waiting around any longer. She didn't have enough money for a flight home, so she charged the plane ticket to the apartment Walter was paying for. She and Ethel cleared out and made it back to Queens long before he got the bill. Arlene returned to her parents' apartment, humbly asking for their forgiveness. She knew full well that her father, Irving, would never turn his daughter away. But she was nervous about what Walter would do when he discovered his mistress was back in New York. He wasn't a mobster, but he did have connections. She'd flagrantly disobeyed him, and that could be dangerous. After a week of worrying, she finally decided to call Walter herself. Walter didn't threaten her or beg her to return to Miami. Instead, he told her to get lost. He was through with their affair. Arlene, however, had no intention of getting lost. She'd spent six months waiting for him, and now he had the audacity to break things off. Arlene also had no money of her own, and without a boyfriend to pay her bills, she was completely at the mercy of her parents. She would have to keep living with her quarrelsome mother, or worse, get a job. Arlene and her friend Ethel devised a plan. Her relationship with Walter might be over, but she still had one card left to play. Arlene called Walter and told him that unless he gave her $10,000, she would call his wife and tell her everything. Walter didn't believe her at first, but Arlene was persistent. He finally broke down and sent $8,000, the equivalent of about $66,000 today. The plan was a success. Arlene and Ethel flew to Vegas and spent most of the money partying. With just a few phone calls, Arlene was back on top. With Walter out of the picture, Arlene went back to chasing after wise guys. She rekindled her friendship with Tony Mira and spent the next few years seducing a series of mobsters, as she'd always done before. But one night in late 1968 would disillusion her from the mob forever. Arlene, then 36, was seeing a low-level mobster named Jilly. One night, Jilly invited her to a club near Times Square called the Wagon Wheel Bar. He wanted her to meet the bar's owner, Salvatore Granello, known as Sally Burns. Arlene had heard of Sally Burns before. He was an associate of her old friend, Funzi, but she had a strange feeling that something was off. She told Jilly she wasn't feeling well and would rather stay in. But Jilly insisted. Arlene finally gave in and got ready. She dressed to the nines as usual and went over to the wagon wheel bar. When Arlene first met Sally, he didn't seem especially interested in her. But as the alcohol continued to flow, Sally warmed up to her. Eventually, he invited her downstairs to the basement so he could show her something. When they got downstairs, however, Arlene realized she'd made a mistake. Two more men she didn't recognize followed them into the basement. Her date, Jilly, was nowhere in sight. One of the men grabbed Arlene and demanded that she perform oral sex on him. Arlene was shocked. In all her time with the mob, she had never been propositioned like this. She was always the one in control. 
Arlene managed to pry Sally's arm off her, but he knocked her to the floor and raped her. So did the other two men. They left her on the floor of the basement, half conscious and bleeding. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for the show. Thanks, Sammy. This type of violent sexual assault has a huge impact on its victims. The Southeastern Center Against Sexual Assault and Family Violence states that each individual who has experienced sexual assault responds to it in their own way, but some common responses are feeling powerless, ashamed, and low self-esteem. It's not surprising then that Arlene fell into a deep depression after the assault. She turned to her mobster friends by instinct. First, Funzie, who she knew was also friends with Sally Burns. Then she reached out to her longtime friend, Tony Mira. But after days of hearing nothing, Arlene realized that her friends wouldn't avenge her. They were more loyal to the mafia than to Arlene, no matter how many favors she had done for them. Arlene had spent close to 20 years surrounded by mobsters, doing whatever she could to make herself indispensable to them. But in her time of need, they refused to come to her help. It was at this moment that Arlene realized that she would never be seen as an equal by her mobster friends. She was a woman, and Jewish too. Had she been Italian and married to one of the mob men, things might have been different. But as a mistress, she wasn't provided with the same respect. Arlene decided to finally take matters into her own hands. If she wanted a seat at the table, she would have to build it herself. Coming up, we'll see how Arlene turned the tables on the mobsters who'd abandoned her. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere, and then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. Now back to the story. In 1969, 36-year-old Arlene Weiss Brickman was finally disillusioned with the mob. Her mobster friends had abandoned her in her time of need, and she realized that after all these years of flitting from one man to the next, she had gained nothing. Arlene finally wanted some stability and a home that she could call her own. She'd never paid much attention to her daughter, Leslie, who was now 11, but now the idea of a family was starting to seem appealing. In February of 1970, Arlene, now 37, met Tommy Luca. He was Italian, and his appearance reminded her of her old friend, Tony Mira. Tommy worked with the mafia, moving from one illegal scheme to the next, but he wasn't a made man. For whatever reason, Arlene believed that Tommy would be the man to turn her life around. Their romance kicked off in the summer of 1970, and Arlene fell fast. For the first few months, Tommy was loving and kind. There was just one problem. Tommy was married and had children of his own. This didn't bother Arlene at first. She'd been a mistress to her fair share of married men before. But this time, Arlene wasn't content to be a mistress. She wanted more of Tommy's affection. 
She believed that if they got an apartment together, the three of them, Tommy Arlene and her daughter Leslie, could be a family. Sometime around 1971, Arlene and her mother got into one of their regular screaming matches. They fought regularly whenever Arlene lived under her mother's roof, and the conflict usually fizzled out by the next morning. But this time, Arlene decided enough was enough. She was moving out. She dragged 13-year-old Leslie out of the apartment and tracked down Tommy. He promptly rented the two of them an apartment in Queens in a building called the Executive House. Arlene got her wish. They were a family. From that point on, Tommy spent all of his time at the Executive House. Arlene believed he'd finally chosen her over his wife. But Tommy had another motivation. He needed a permanent location where he could conduct business. Tommy worked in the numbers business, an illegal lottery run by small-time racketeers, with a partner named Vito. Arlene knew that Tommy also had a silent partner, a mobster connected to the Colombo family. Every day, Arlene would cook for the men and listen as they collected numbers and portioned out the winnings. Over time, she started taking on more responsibilities, counting the money and calling out the winning numbers. Arlene was smart. She caught on quickly. As she became more involved in the bookmaking business, she noticed a problem. Tommy had a habit of running up high debts. When he won big, Tommy spent thousands of dollars on food, alcohol, and other luxuries. But when he wasn't lucky, he kept spending the same way. He was racking up huge debts, and he often had to borrow from loan sharks to stay afloat until the next big win. To Arlene, Tommy was a member of the family. Even more, he was the family's breadwinner. If he was in trouble, they all were. She made it her mission to keep Tommy out of debt. Unfortunately, this may have taken a toll on her mental health. According to a study conducted by the University of Southampton, Experiencing financial difficulties and worrying about debt increased the risk of mental illnesses such as depression and anxiety. Taking on the stress of Tommy's financial problems couldn't have been good for Arlene. On top of this, Arlene soon discovered that Tommy had a temper. He'd always been sweet to her, but now, when he made an unlucky bet, he took his anger out by beating Arlene. But no matter how badly he treated her, Arlene always stuck by his side. Part of this may have been due to residual trauma after Arlene's rape. It's possible that on some level, she felt as though she deserved Tommy's abuse, especially if she was experiencing low self-esteem and blaming herself for the assault. It's also possible that after that incident, Arlene believed that at least Tommy's abuse was safer than being assaulted by another mobster. That's right. According to a paper from the University of Alabama, women in violent relationships often focus on the positives and compare their situations with others who experience more abuse than they do. This can help them rationalize staying in their abusive relationships. In some ways, these women feel safer knowing what's coming rather than leaving for the unknown. Regardless of the reason, Arlene was determined to make this relationship work. And to do it, she'd have to take the reins of Tommy's numbers business. Arlene had figured out a way to cheat the lottery so that their payday would be larger. Instead of taking actual bets from other people, they filled their ledger with fake bets under invented names. 
Arlene worked out the totals to ensure that it would always result in a net profit. Whoever won or lost, a good chunk of money would always end up in Tommy and Arlene's hands. That money was provided by Tommy Luca's silent partner, the mobster from the Colombo family. He fronted the money for the pool, with the expectation that he'd make it back from the gamblers who'd lost. Arlene didn't even know the mobster's name until one day in 1971, when Tommy came to her in a panic. Someone by the name of Fritzi was coming by for an accounting. Arlene quickly realized this must be the silent partner. The mob was losing money thanks to Arlene's new scheme, and Fritzi was coming by to check the books. If the Colombo family discovered that they were cheating them, they could all end up dead. But Arlene was always a quick thinker. She came up with a solution. They hired an outside woman to pretend to be the keeper of the books to draw suspicion away from themselves. When Fritzi came by, the woman pleaded innocence, claiming that it was just bad luck. Fritzi believed her. But the Colombo family decided to shut the operation down anyway, rather than risk losing any more money. The operation was over, but at least the scheme had cemented a solid partnership between Arlene and Tommy. With Tommy's connections and Arlene's creative thinking, there was no con they couldn't pull off. But without the operation, Tommy's debts continued to balloon, and his reasons to stick around with Arlene diminished. He would disappear for days on end, only returning sporadically. Arlene received daily calls from Tommy's creditors, who knew the apartment served as his headquarters. Tommy was gone, and Arlene was left to deal with the fallout herself. The stress was too much, and in 1972, she decided she needed to get away. She rented an apartment across the river in New Jersey, where she and her daughter Leslie could live together, just mother and daughter. Leslie was now around 14 years old, and she had a troubled relationship with her mother. Leslie had been left to fend for herself while Arlene was off chasing mobsters. She was constantly passed around between her mother, aunt, and grandmother. Now that Arlene finally wanted to be a mother, Leslie wanted nothing to do with her. She was sullen, rebellious, and even turned to drug use as a way to escape her troubled home life. Arlene had no idea how to keep her daughter in line. Leslie had taken after her. She was determined to rebel no matter how much it upset her mother. It didn't take long for Tommy Luca to re-enter their lives. His creditors were still trying to hunt him down, and he needed to make money fast. He turned to Arlene, hoping she'd have another creative scheme. In November of 1972, Arlene and Tommy were introduced to Vince Lamatina, a loan shark who worked for the Colombo family. Using her usual methods of seduction, Arlene convinced Lamatina to give Tommy a loan. Arlene and Tommy used that loan to start a new bookmaking operation out of Arlene's new home in Fort Lee, New Jersey. It was a brand new, untapped market without any mob bosses to answer to. The business ran smoothly for more than a year. Tommy was able to stay ahead of his debts, and Arlene and Tommy worked together without any mishaps. But their luck wouldn't last long. In December of 1974, just before Christmas, a neighbor tipped off the Fort Lee police about the bookmaking operation being run out of Arlene's apartment. Arlene and Tommy were arrested. After all her time running with mobsters, Arlene was finally caught breaking the law. She was humiliated. And to top it off, she was forced to ask her mother, Billy, for bail. Billy sent $15,000 
and promised her daughter that she would never send her another penny. The police had all the evidence they needed to ensure that both Tommy and Arlene would be found guilty if the case went to court. Instead, they both decided to take plea deals. Arlene, a first-time offender, was sentenced to a year's probation and a $200 fine, while Tommy was sentenced to six months in the county jail. With Tommy in jail and Arlene's mother no longer providing her with money, Arlene had to borrow money from mobsters and loan sharks to make ends meet. She hoped Tommy would help her pay off the loans when he was out of jail. A few weeks after the arrest, Arlene learned that Tommy's former business associates were sending money to Tommy's wife and children while he was in jail. Arlene was enraged. She was the one who'd helped conduct their business in the first place, but she was only a mistress. Once again, she was cast aside while Tommy's real wife was protected. Arlene needed to reach out and vent to someone, but Tommy was in jail, her mobster friends had long abandoned her, and talking about her mob associates to outsiders was just asking for trouble. There was only one person she could turn to, someone who already knew all the details of her crimes, the detective who'd arrested her, Joe Spina. During her arrest and questioning, Spina had been kind and understanding. He seemed to empathize with her, and he'd helped her get off without any jail time. So, in the summer of 1975, Arlene called Detective Spina at his office. Not for revenge, not to strike up a deal, just to talk. Spina was an eager listener. Of course, he had his own motives for doing so. He hoped to learn more about Arlene's gangster connections. She never spoke directly about business. At first, she'd mostly complained about Tommy. Tommy was released from jail in the middle of 1975, but he made no strides toward helping Arlene pay her mounting bills. As their conversations grew more frequent, Arlene started talking about her former associates on the Lower East Side and all the men she had seduced. All the while, Detective Spina passed the information along to his supervisors. Arlene didn't consider herself an informant. She wasn't trying to get anyone arrested or save herself from prosecution. To her, the conversations were something like therapy. She talked, Spina listened. She might have also realized that having a detective in her corner could be useful down the line. In the summer of 1976, after a year of their regular chats, Arlene came to Joe Spina with a problem. Arlene had been borrowing money from loan sharks to pay her bills while Tommy was in jail. But Tommy had been released a year ago, and her debts had only increased, skyrocketing to over $5,000, the equivalent of $22,000 today. The loan sharks were now threatening violence. They even threatened to hurt Leslie, Arlene's 18-year-old daughter. Arlene had lost her faith in the mob and in Tommy. If she wanted help, there was only one place left to turn. Detective Spina and his partner, George Deal, offered to help Arlene out of her situation, as long as she helped collect evidence to incriminate the loan sharks. It was risky. If she was caught wearing a wire, she'd be in serious danger, but she didn't have a better option. Arlene agreed. Coming up, we'll see how the former mob girl worked to bring down one of the biggest crime families in New York. Now, back to the story. On August 25th, 1976, Arlene Weiss Brickman was officially registered as an informant for the Fort Lee police. It's possible that Arlene believed this was her only way out of an impossible situation. 
But it's also possible that turning her back on the mob was Arlene's way of finally getting revenge for the night they'd assaulted and abandoned her eight years earlier. Arlene had borrowed money from a loan shark known as The Fish. With a little digging, the detectives determined that this was a code name for a mobster in the Colombo family, Robert Anthony Fischetti. At this point, the Fort Lee PD detectives were out of their depth, so they turned to an organization that was known for handling mobsters like Fischetti, the FBI. The FBI's organized crime team had been waiting for an opening to go after Fischetti. Because he was threatening Arlene with violence, the FBI could arrest him for extortion, which was a federal crime. The FBI offered Arlene a deal. If she wore a wire to her meetings with the loan sharks, they would provide her with the money to make her loan payments. The government would get the evidence needed to prosecute Robert Fischetti and his associates, and Arlene would be debt-free. The thought of wearing a wire terrified Arlene. She was trusted within mob circles and probably wouldn't be searched. But if they somehow discovered that she was an informant, she could be killed. But if she didn't try, she had no way to free herself from the loan shark's grasp. She agreed to wear the wire. A few weeks later, Arlene was set to meet with one of Fischetti's associates, a low-level mobster named Billy, to make her weekly payment. She was racked with nerves. The FBI had given her a coat to disguise the outline of the wire, but it was a warm evening, and as she sweat, the wire started to slip. Her task was seemingly simple. She had to get Billy threatening her on tape so that the extortion could be proved in court. It didn't take much negotiating to get Billy to threaten that if she didn't make the payment, a thug named Frankie would come to her home and throw her right out the window. After that, Arlene relented and handed over the $300 the FBI had given her for the meeting. Her debt was paid and the FBI was suitably impressed they had more work for her to do. Arlene turned out to be an excellent informant. She knew how to coerce information out of her mobster friends, and she wasn't afraid to press when they weren't giving her what she needed. Because Arlene's old contacts all ran in different circles, no one ever realized that the string of arrests were connected to her. Arlene found herself enjoying the work as an informant. It was just like being a mob girl, except she knew she was always the one in control. And the pay was good. Not as much as what she'd received from her mobster boyfriends, but enough to make a living. During this time, Arlene was still living in New Jersey, and she'd rekindled an on-and-off relationship with Tommy Luca. Tommy had turned back to criminal schemes after his release from jail in 1975, and he had no idea Arlene was working with the government. For two years, Arlene worked as an informant for the FBI, DEA, and local police without running into any problems. But in the fall of 1978, Arlene finally realized what a dangerous position being an informant put her in. The FBI had saved Arlene's tapes from her conversations with Billy as they continued to investigate Robert Fischetti, the loan shark who had threatened her in the first place. She'd known from the beginning that if the case ever went to court, she would have to testify. But as the trial got closer, Arlene grew nervous. If she appeared in court, everyone in the mafia would know that she'd been working as an informant. Her career, and possibly her life, would be over. The government offered to put Arlene into witness protection, but she worried that the agents wouldn't be able to protect her. She needed to get away both from the FBI and from the mafia. 
In the winter of 1978, Arlene absconded to Atlantic Beach. She figured that because she didn't have any connections there, no one would think to look for her. She found a large house with enough room for herself, Tommy Luca, and Leslie. Tommy was still married to his wife, but at this point, the marriage was in name only. He always found himself drawn back to Arlene. Leslie, who was now 20, stayed in Fort Lee for a couple of months while Tommy and Arlene settled into their new home. As it turned out, the FBI found Arlene quickly. They checked her phone records and saw outgoing calls placed to Atlantic Beach. The FBI ordered Arlene to stay put until she was asked to testify in court. This time, Arlene listened, and not just because of her new respect for the government's tracking abilities. Tommy had brought new business partners with him to Atlantic Beach, and Arlene and Tommy quickly started up a new, highly profitable venture together, selling drugs. Tommy partnered up with a marijuana dealer named Billy Ricciuti, who lived close to Atlantic Beach. Once again, Arlene's home became a meeting point for Tommy's business. While Tommy and Billy organized the logistics of their drug shipments, Arlene cooked and cleaned. Even though Arlene worked as an informant, she rationalized that there was no harm in helping Tommy's business on the side, especially with the amount of money they were making. And she wasn't taking an active role in the business, she was merely keeping house. If anyone asked, she was an unwitting participant. But this rationalization was harder to sustain when Leslie finally joined her from Fort Lee. Billy Ricciuti was instantly taken with Arlene's 20-year-old daughter, and he decided to rope her into the business. He hired her as a driver to help move their product back and forth from Florida. Arlene was initially disturbed by this, but she had to admit the business was flourishing. Leslie was making good money, Tommy was happier than ever, and Arlene was given some money for her role as hostess. But it didn't take the cops long to catch on. When they brought Arlene in for questioning, however, she startled them by stating she worked for the DEA. Strictly speaking, this wasn't true, but she was willing to help them lure in Tommy's partner, Billy Ricciuti. Ricciuti wasn't just another small-time mobster. He ran a whole drug empire, and there were rumors that he had connections to the Colombo crime family. With the threat of arrest looming, Arlene started taking notes and recording evidence that would send Ricciuti behind bars indefinitely. In January of 1980, the police arrested Ricciuti and his sons, all of whom were involved in the business, as well as Tommy Luca. Tommy was only sentenced to probation, but he knew Arlene had been involved in his arrest. He grew even more abusive, then abandoned her and returned to his wife. Arlene was left in Atlantic Beach by herself. Several months earlier, Robert Anthony Fischetti had accepted a plea deal, meaning Arlene would no longer have to testify against him. And with no reason to fear the mob anymore, she might as well go back to New York. Both the government and Arlene benefited from her return to Queens. She began reaching out to her former connections in the underworld, helping the government bring down even more of their targets. She was still worried about testifying in court, but she needed the income she earned as a paid informant. Through her extensive connections in the underworld, her knowledge of how things worked, and her resourcefulness, Arlene managed to put dozens of criminals in jail between 1980 and 1983. Occasionally, Arlene brought in loan sharks that were hounding Tommy Luca. Even though they were no longer living together, 
Arlene and Tommy had once again resumed their volatile, unhealthy relationship. In the years after Billy Ricciuti's arrest, Tommy graduated from marijuana to dealing in cocaine and heroin. As usual, he was in constant debt. Tommy used Arlene's government connections to keep creditors off his back. He gave Arlene tips to pass along, and in turn, Arlene received gratitude from both the FBI and Tommy. Up until 1984, Arlene mostly informed on small-time criminals who ran in separate circles. In this way, she was able to protect her identity as the leak. She even got arrested herself several times. All for show, of course. But in the summer of 1984, the government saw their chance to bring in major members of the Colombo crime family. Anthony Scarpati, one of the capos of the family, and the leader, Carmine Persico himself. Tommy Luca had borrowed some money for Vinnie Manzo, one of Anthony Scarpati's henchmen, and found himself unable to pay back the loan. When the FBI discovered Arlene was tied up with Scarpati, they thought it could be the perfect opportunity to finally bring him in for illegal loans and extortion. Through her old mob connections, Arlene had known Vinnie, the loan shark who worked for Scarpati, for years. If anyone could coerce him into incriminating his bosses, it was Arlene. So... In mid-1984, Arlene invited Vinny over for dinner. The main purpose of the evening, she said, would be to discuss the loan payments and negotiate an even settlement so that Luca would no longer be in Scarpati's debt. But Arlene was clever. She lured Vinny Manzo into incriminating both Anthony Scarpati and Scarpati's boss, Carmine Persico, by linking them back to the loan and the extortion attempts. The FBI agents listening knew they had struck gold. In October of 1984, the FBI served 11 indictments to members of the Colombo family and prepared to take the major leaders of the family to trial. This was a huge success for the government. By simultaneously arresting so many of their leaders, they threw the Colombo family into complete turmoil. They were also sending the rest of New York's crime families a message the government was cracking down on organized crime. This time, Arlene's involvement was impossible to hide. She knew she couldn't stay in New York. She and Leslie ran off to Miami Beach, Florida, until it was time to testify. Arlene was anxious to testify like before, but her testimony was the crux of the entire case. And this time, Arlene was prepared to take the stand. A full year later, in November of 1985, Arlene testified against Carmine Persico and 10 other members of the Colombo family. Along with the other evidence she collected while surveilling them, her testimony helped sentence them to jail. After all her years as a mob girl, Arlene had found a way to turn the tables and find her own place in the underground crime. If you can't join them, beat them. To this day, Arlene refuses to enter witness protection, instead choosing to live by her wits. And surprisingly, the mob has never tried to retaliate against her. She had finally proven herself as a force to be reckoned with. Arlene may have started out as a mob girl like any other, but with her intelligence, resourcefulness, and resilience, she proved that she was much more than arm candy. When she needed to, she was able to bring the mob to its knees.
Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. You can find more Female Criminals and all of ParCast podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. Many of you have asked how to help the show. And if you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Female Criminals is written by Liz Doravitzine and stars Sammy Nye and Vanessa Richardson. 